everyone to episode three of our Let's Talk Surgery podcast for the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And today I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host and friend, Ceci, as always. Hi, Ceci, how are you? Hey, guys. I'm fine. Excellent. And we're also joined, uh, and we're grateful to have them both on, we've got uh, David O'Regan and Dave Riding on the show with us. How are you, gents? Good evening. Thank you very Thanks. much indeed for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for having us. Excellent. Uh, so over the next few minutes, we'll uh, get to know you pair a, a little bit better, but also have a chance to discuss some of your um, priorities and, and work streams uh, for the college and for the wider surgical community in some detail. Um, as we often do with this podcast, it's always a good uh, start to get our listeners to know you a bit better. Uh, so we'll open the floor to you, David O'Regan, first, if you just tell our listeners who might not really know you that well. Who is David O'Regan? Thank you very much, Greg, and thank you, Ceci, for the invitation to participate. I'm a cardiac surgeon. I've been practicing in Leeds for 19 years. I am also the current director of the Faculty of Surgical Trainers. I, I went to medical school in Southampton, and I then got on to the SHO rotation in Bath. And what was interesting, my first list really was, here's a knife, you know your anatomy, off you go. And I looked at my logbook the other day for two and a half years of an SHO in Bath, and I got then a numbered rotation in general surgery in Oxford. And six months of that and two and a half years in Bath, I counted 2,700 operations, which I thought, compare contrast with today is astonishing. I did the, went for the rotation in Oxford because that was the only rotation as a registrar that included cardiac surgery or cardiothoracic surgery. And I was interested in that because I was interested in trauma. And I was worked with Steve Westerby, Ravi Pillai, and they created an SR job between Oxford and Papworth, and Andrew Parry, who's a professor of pediatric surgery in Bristol, got the SR job. And both Steve and Ravi said, you obviously like this and got an aptitude for it. How about a career in cardiac surgery? And I do recall, interestingly enough, going to see Neil Mortensen who's now the president of the English College, to explain why I was going to relinquish my number in general surgery and pursue a career in cardiac surgery. And I do recall him telling me I'm mad because I'd spend the rest of my own calls up all night and working. And I did say to him at the time, I do not think so because things are going to change. And this was 1992. Things are going to change. And when I get called in in the future, they'll be called in usually because someone is having a heart attack or a dissection and acute revascularization. But I said to Mr. Mortensen, when you get called in the future, you'll be coming in on the on course to assist and be there for your training surgeons. And how prophetic that has been because the acute cardiac workload now is uh, primary PCI. And of course, what, three times a year, one might get a dissection. So from there, I got a numbered training job at the Brompton Hospital. And I was the only applicant at the time not to have research. And uh, I remember being asked, so what are you going to do for research? And I had this idea, having developed it, doing some background reading with Steve Westerby. And I took that to the Thrombosis Research Institute without any uh, sponsorship or monies, whatever, and worked up an overdraft, as students do. And at the end of that, we got a British Heart Foundation grant to continue the research, but I went back into training. I was appointed a consultant surgeon in uh, Leeds in November 2000 and started in February 2001. 
Excellent. Um, very interesting, as expected, and I bet you remind me all the time of uh, how right your decision was for leaving general surgery to where you are now. Well, what was interesting when I was an SHO and a registrar, I remember standing with the boss and you're looking at tea cards on the wall and we're looking, putting a list together and saying, well, what should we do this week? Oh, I fancy doing a thyroidectomy and then what shall we do? a cholecystectomy and of course the lower bowel operations etc were at the end of the list because they were potentially infected cases and uh, I remember David Britton walking between the two theatres at the time we had twin theatres as one side as the SHO and Alistair Flaudry now retired was probably was the senior register on the other side and David Britton walked between the two saying keep cutting my boys keep cutting and it, it, it was, it, it, thinking back on it, it was a totally different time. But I do re recall, uh, for example, as an SHO, a obstructed femoral hernia coming in and took that to theatre at night. And I thought to myself, well, I'd never really done a pre-peritoneal approach before. I wonder what that is like. And I had an anatomy book open on the diathermy and an excellent scrub nurse, the FCNs. And I was looking at the anatomy book and looking at this and said, oh, that's it, that's it, this is wonderful. And I found a knuckle of small bowel in this femoral hernia, which I repaired and it looked a bit black. So I resected a bit of the small bowel and stitched up. And the boss asked me in the morning, what, uh, you know, how did things go? And I said, this is what I've done. He said, oh, but I haven't, you know, haven't taught you how to do as a, a bowel anastomosis. I said, we've been watching carefully and I'm happy. And I was just thinking, oh, you know, that's, that's just the way things were in those days in some respects. And you learned by volume rather, and you didn't, you didn't have somebody guiding you through your operating it's a different perspective to see one do them all. Um, yes, it, it, it was. You know, I, I agree with you. That saying was there, see one, do one, teach one. Correct. Uh, that's, and the patients did fine, and I kept a logbook, and I was meticulous about keeping data. Because I do believe if you're going to operate, we, we work in a show-me environment. And if you're not prepared to show me, then I don't think you should be operating. But... Uh, and that's the importance of a logbook, but we only keep short-term outcomes, and really what we should be looking at is long-term outcomes, but not just mortality, but efficacy and complications. But more importantly, we should be looking at patient experience as well. Stephen Reagan, always, always uh, full of good advice and, and wise words. Um, Dave Reading, good luck following that up. Uh, who is Dave Reading? Uh, well, it's not someone who managed to do two and a half thousand operations as an SHO, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I, uh, I started off in medical school in Manchester uh, and initially intended to be a respiratory physician, so I've come quite a long way since then. Uh, but as soon as I started my surgical F1 jobs uh, at University Hospital South Manchester, uh, I was hooked um, and it just went on from there, really. So I ended up deciding to do vascular surgery, uh, which was part of general surgery when I started training. Uh, and then uh, devolved to become a separate specialty. Um, I took some time out of training to work in Uganda for a year, uh, doing some teaching, some uh, some clinical surgery, and also took some time out to do some research. Um, I think what I've learned from my training so far is that it's good to mix things up, get a variety of experiences, and not just hurtle straight long, straight on in towards consultancy. You know, I think that's really important. I think any extra skills you can get that are not on the curriculum are very much worthwhile and they'll make you a better rounded candidate by the team time you do take on uh, a consultant role, which we may be doing for 25 years. Um, and again, I, I think David's alluded to it. You, you have to be a little bit flexible as a surgical trainee. Uh, and just as an example, the vascular becoming a separate specialty um, meant I, me and some of my colleagues had to work to a, a different curriculum halfway through our registrar training. Um, 
you, you, you can fight these things or you can just go with it and see it as an opportunity. And I think if there's one message that I can get across, it's to be flexible and, and that's never been more important than it is right now. Uh, so I guess the the lessons from my training are that flexibility is vital and, and in, with COVID, as I'm sure we'll go on to discuss, there has to be a strong degree of flexibility at the moment in order to get people through. So that, that's yeah. me in a nutshell, really. Yeah, absolutely right, Dave. I think um, flexibility, I think that's, that's a very poignant point, uh, particularly now uh, during COVID times, but also moving forward. Uh, this will not be the last time the curriculum changes and how we adapt to that, I think, is, is critically important as surgical trainees. Also interesting to know that you wanted to be a respiratory physician. Uh, we can talk about that later. I also wanted to be an oncologist once upon a time, but here I am as a colorectal surgeon. So uh, flexibility as, as they say. As, thank you both very much for that. The, what we tend to do next on, on the podcast is some quick fire questions to get to know you all a bit better. Uh, these are questions you haven't uh, seen before, I'm afraid. So uh, we like to catch you off guard. Uh, so David O'Regan, uh, if cardiothoracic or cardiac surgery was not on the curriculum, what would you do with yourself? That's a very good question, actually. I've, I've enjoyed all the specialties I've worked in. And this comes down to, I think, what Dave was alluding to, is one being flexible, but I think seizing all the opportunities and putting your whole self in. I loved urology. I enjoyed vascular surgery. I enjoyed the upper GI surgery. Uh, I enjoyed the, the, the lower GI surgery. I must say I'd have a little difficulty with, with smells. I'm not too good with smells, I'm afraid. Uh, it's interesting how time is separated. Dave has alluded to vascular surgery is separated off from general surgery. And it, it, harking back to our time, we would do it all as registrars and SHOs. And now we're seeing a separation of cardiac surgery and thoracic surgery. It does bring the question, we are becoming more and more specialized, but how, is that a good thing? Is that wise? Can you sustain rotors like that? These questions I don't think have been addressed. Suffice to say, I think a surgeon can operate in any part of the body, a trained surgeon, provided they know the anatomy. And that comes down to basic skills, tissue handling, and, and dissection. I, and I, I've always thoroughly enjoyed operating. Yeah. I enjoy, I, as I said, I had a thought of doing trauma surgery. Uh, that's why I, I chose the ro general surgical rotation in Oxford. Um, but I think I found my forte and in cardiac surgery. Absolutely love it. Uh, I think I, I agree with a lot of what you say around subspecialization, but the one thing I take issue with is colorectal surgery being smelly. I think no, no, I, a... no, no. It, it, <laughs> I, I, it, it, I, I have, I don't react well to bad smell myself. All right. I, it's, I guess I, it's, I just find it difficult, but uh, I think it's challenging and excellent surgery. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, and hats off. Thank you. I, we, I, we can agree I, on that. No, I, I, I have to relate a, a story. Uh, uh, one of the senior registrars in uh, Bath, when I was an SG chair, he would say, and he'd done his thesis about nitric oxide in the anal sphincter. And I was saying, wow. And then he said, think of it this way. If you put feces, flatus, and fluid in the cup of your hand and ask your fingers to sort that out, your hand can't, but the anus can. And I thought, wow, wow. Uh, I think I might just make the title of this podcast episode just that. Uh, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I thought, you know, and he was an outstanding surgeon and his thesis was groundbreaking. I think he got a Hunterian lecture. But again, it demonstrated the passion that he brought to his specialty 
um, uh, he was a wonderful surgeon and a, an excellent senior registrar. And I understand a well-established surgeon in the field. Excellent. Um, right, Dave, uh, to you next. Uh, Manchester United and Manchester City. Question uh, Black, Blackburn Rovers is the answer. <laughs> what <laughs> league are they in again? Uh, they're in the championship and doing very they well, thanks. Of course they are. Uh, and Dave, we'll still stick with you. If there were three words that could describe Dave writing, what would they be? Blimey, uh, you'd have to get my wife uh, involved in that question, I think. Um, I think probably deadpan. Um, hardworking and tired. I, 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 yep, I, I can see all three. Uh, David O'Regan, three words to describe you. A restless discontent for the status quo. That was a lot more than three words, but I think that describes you quite aptly. That was so great getting to know you guys um, a little bit better. I've certainly learned things about you that I didn't know. Um, we're going to focus the discussion a bit on the elephant in the room for everyone, really. This pandemic has had huge changes to um, how training is delivered, um, the amount and the quality of training that we've received. So it'd be interesting to get your perspectives on the COVID-related changes to training that we have seen in the UK over the past few months. And I'll just direct the first question to you, David O'Regan. Um, It'll be interesting to hear your perspective on the Faculty of Surgical Trainers response to COVID and how trainers and trainees can balance that very fine line between service and training in this difficult time. Cersei, that is a good question. I at first want to put to bed this theoretical conflict between service and training. I started the Silver Scalpel Award in 1999 as the president of the Association of Surgeons in Training because I believed you can have the most innovative training program you like, but it's not going to go anywhere without a good trainer. And I've had the privilege of interviewing many of the shortlisted candidates over the past 20 years, and it's now done by Asset Council. But there's one theme that actually comes out from these interviews and these experiences, that good service and good training go hand in hand. And in many respects, training is a philosophy. Every single day is a training opportunity. And I, I personally, from my learning from the Silver Scalpel Award winners, think we need to actually change this concept. But we do need to actually create time and space to enable the trainee and trainer to get the most out of this. And there's an obvious return on investment. If we don't train, we're not gonna get surgeons for tomorrow. But training should be a privilege and a joy. But if we create time and space and recognize the trainer, we will have safe, effective surgery today and tomorrow that will offer an excellent experience for the trainee, the trainer, and more importantly, the patient. I, th I think COVID has disrupted thinking for everybody. And uh, Stephen Kerr, of the librarian of the college, sent me 20 PDF papers outlining COVID responses, and I'm still digesting them. Well, one, I think everybody's recognized the importance of training and the quality of training. Two, I think the COVID has, by its very nature, reduced hierarchies and enabled conversations and appreciation that we're in this together. Three, as David, Dave has actually alluded to, it has created opportunities for doctors in training to learn other skills which will be valuable and I think we need to get beyond counting volume and I go back to my original statement I learned by volume 
I didn't learn by training. And we are seeing the advent of uh, SIPs or entrustable, entrusted uh, professional activities and more focus on competency and quality of training. So in many respects, it's forcing us to look at how we train and how to get the better out of the working day. And I say working day because I am a little concerned that we have created an environment of web learning that appears to be happening out of hours. Training should be intrinsic in the working day and we should never forget the work-life balance that is important for the trainee and the trainer. Here, here. Very, very elegantly put words. And I think myself and my co-host share a lot of the values and ideas that you've put forward about flexibility, about how training should be intrinsic to the working day. And I personally, anytime I'm tempted to get a bit frustrated with a junior who doesn't know how to do something, I very quickly remember that they could be treating me or my family member in future. So it's about passing the baton on in a very um, high quality way. And it also brings what you said about um, virtual learning environments. That brings me very nicely to my next question to you, Dave Riding. What sort of changes have you seen um, both in your working life and as a member of the trainees committee in response to COVID, just adjustments that trainees have had to make to their training? Yeah, I mean, I guess the obvious one is, is things like this. So things being hosted online is obviously much more common at the moment. Um, and I think that has, that has advantages as well as disadvantages like most things. I think, you know, the, the, the face-to-face teaching that we've all had previously requires you to be at a certain place at a certain time. And I think with the move towards shift working, it's not always possible for people to access uh, the teaching sessions that they would normally go to, uh, whether they're in hours or out of hours. And so I think things like archived uh, webinars that I know the college has done a huge number of where they can be accessed anytime are a, a great resource, really. Uh, and they also enable access to a broader spectrum of teachers as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm a perfect example of someone who's basically stayed in the same place for their entire training from medical school all the way through to, you know, the latter part of registrar training. And so there is a risk of kind of group thinking you, you get siloed into the culture of a particular hospital or region, um, particularly in specialties where you don't actually rotate around that many hospitals. So cardiothoracics and vascular are, are two good examples of that. Uh, you know, in the whole of the Northwest now, there's only a handful of, of services of hospitals offering vascular services. And so I think if, if you access, um, you know, webinars that are either hosted in the UK from other regions or from overseas, you get a much broader perspective on things um, that you wouldn't normally have had access to previously. Um, I think for, you know, from the college's point of view, we obviously have a huge number of international members as well. Um, and from having contributed to a lot of the webinars uh, that we've done so far, it's noticeable that there are a huge number of overseas doctors who are, wanting to engage with the college, uh, wanting to gain access to insights from the UK. And they've now been able to do that in a much more organized uh, and useful way than they ever have, I, I would suggest. Um, I think there are some disadvantages to it too. So, you know, we're human beings and we thrive on interaction, whether that's in an educational context or just in life in general. And I think particularly for people starting out at the beginning of their careers, um, the reduction in face-to-face teaching is probably a disadvantage because it, they don't always know where to look for the resources. Um, so if you're a foundation year doctor, um, you know, you, you haven't necessarily heard of the, the rule or club for vascular trainees. And that's where all, a lot of our national teaching occurs now. So it does rely on, on perhaps registrars and, and seniors signposting things for people a bit better than they would previously, rather than saying, you know, come along to this teaching session that's going to be in your department this afternoon, which obviously is easy for them. I think we mentioned impactment on uh, impact on work-life balance as well. Um, I think initially when, in, our, in my particular region, we, we did start having our teaching sessions out of hours. And I think that was well-intentioned and understandable um, because a lot of our colleagues were redeployed elsewhere and they couldn't necessarily get time off to 
attended the teaching sessions. And so hosting it out of hours was an obvious solution. But I think it's become obvious that this is this is something we're in for the long haul. Um, and so there has to be better integration of teaching into the normal daily work. And it also penalizes people who are parents as well, because a lot of the webinars and, and other sessions start at seven or eight o'clock. And, you know, if you have children, you know that those couple of hours are right off, basically. So I think that, you know, none of this is done deliberately. It's all, you know, it, this is a, you know, a, a problem we're all trying to so, so, uh, solve together, whether, whether you're a trainer or a trainee. Um, and I think these kind of things, as long as we raise them, um, you know, and then point out that things can be improved, then, you know, as surgeons, as a, a collective, we're pretty good at doing that. I think the other thing that is important to recognize is that when you're doing things online, it's much harder to be reflexive as a teacher. So when you, whether you're doing small group teaching at the bedside or whether you're delivering a lecture, you're constantly reading the room for body language, hidden cues, and you just don't have the facility to do that on Zoom or online. And it, it makes it much harder, in my experience, to teach people just because, you, you, you know, when, whenever you're presenting something or teaching, you're always responding to the people who are around you. And I think that's very difficult to do online. Um, but again, I'm sure that's a problem we can overcome. We're still in the infancy of this, but I think, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages, but as long as we're continually reflecting on how best to use the technology, then it, it, it is here to stay, but we, we just need to avoid relying on it, I think is a, is a useful summary. I think that's, uh, that, 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 those are excellent points made, uh, Dave, and, uh, and listening to your reflections there, the key thing is that word flexibility again, uh, that, you've, that you've come to, flexibility both for trainees and for trainers, um, but also support and community, uh, especially for those in the earliest stage of training, where uh, we as a surgical community and, and doctors in general uh, support each other uh, through the difficulties uh, that we're all going through together. Um, Dave, you and I are coming to the end of, of our respective training programs and uh, what COVID has also uh, done for us, but also for other trainees is let's put a bit more of a sharper focus on competencies and what we need to finish. As, as David O'Regan suggests, uh, currently it's, it is a bit above volume when it comes to your CCT, etc. And so we recognize that uh, there's going to be or has been some reduction in elective activity within our respective hospitals. There's also been a shift to private sector operating. It'd be useful to get your views around uh, the training environment uh, presented by the private sector uh, and, and trainees in the private sector, also recognizing that within basket surgery might be fairly limited. But in your capacity as a chair of our trainees committee, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, again, I think you know you, you, we've got to roll with the punches and find solutions. And so, I would never, I would never say never, um, but I think there have to be certain caveats uh, included in any contracts we have with the private sector to provide training. So, you know, I, I've no experience of working in private hospitals, so um, all this has to be, uh, or what I'm about to say, has to be taken in that context. But uh, I'm not sure the hospitals are necessarily geared up for training in the same way that NHS practices are and that, that obviously may not be true of all private hospitals but it, it may be true of some um, from speaking to my seniors it seems like a lot of the private hospitals there's a perception that um, they're able to get cases done more quickly and more efficiently because they don't have the, the pressures that the NHS is used to yeah they also do you know uh, high volume low risk procedures um, and whilst the, there is a place for training to take place in that context, it's, it's not always available to all specialties. So again, cardiothoracics, um, vascular, the NHS isn't funding varicose vein surgery really at the moment, uh, and patients aren't coming through for it anyway. Yeah. Aside from that kind of surgery, there isn't really a lot that you could describe as minor surgery in, in vascular. I imagine the same is true of lots of other specialties too. Um, I think one of the key things that we always tend to forget is that it's not just about the operation. So have you seen the patient beforehand? Have you built a rapport with them? Have you discussed the operation with them? Have you got a feel for exactly what their symptoms are, how it's affecting their life? What do they actually want? You know, do they, do they want you to go all out? Do they want you to be cautious? These are key skills to pick up as a surgeon. And I think there's a, there's a difficulty with being parachuted into 
a random private hospital to do an operation in inverted commas. And then the day after the day after that, you're not there to see them afterwards as well. I think that presents a major problem because otherwise we just become technicians and we, you know, I think most surgeons would agree that we're much more than that. Um, and I think particularly when you're a trainee, you know, I remember starting off doing appendicectomies. Um, you get feedback just by seeing the patient alive at the end of the bed the morning after. <laughs> and if you take out a 14-year-old's appendix as a, a core trainee, you know, you have to go and see the patient the day after just to prove to yourself that you can actually do this. And I think we underestimate things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, obviously, sometimes you have to be there to learn how to manage the post-operative complications. And so I guess my main concern with the private sector training is that it's, it can be pseudo training because you'll be there with a the consultant. Um, there'll be pressure to get things done quickly. Not that there isn't in the NHS, but I think it will be different. And I don't think you're going to be able to follow the patient through their, their admission and their aftercare in the same way that you would in the NHS. But I, I accept for, for some specialties that isn't necessarily a problem where the focus is on day case surgery. Um, but as long as that, as long as the training in the private sector, you know, echoes that can be found in the NHS, then I think it's something we'd have to see as a, a positive step forward. Absolutely, Dave. I agree with you entirely. I think it's uh, specialty dependent. It is also recognition that there is more to training than the actual cutting. So I completely agree. Dave, I'd, I'd, agree, I'd agree with you entirely with your comments there. The... The training is agreed to occur in the private sector, thanks to the colleges. And we do agree that the less difficult cases are being done there too. But this again comes down to the trainer-trainee relationship. And there are, should be opportunities. And since these are NHS patients that are going to the private sector, they could still be seen and assessed in the pre-admission clinic. And I do think that the outpatient clinic is a very valuable tool for teaching people. One of the things that is difficult, I think, and I agree with you, there's more to surgery than just operating because they say a surgeon who wants his cuts, a good surgeon or one who knows when to cut, and an excellent surgeon knows when not to cut. And it's what matters to the patient that is important. But I would never, ever, ever contemplate operating on anybody unless I fully assess them beforehand. Because that's when errors occur. And that's where you have not taken into account what the patient wants. But this comes back to the way we run the system in general. And it's... It, I recall a patient that I saw in clinic as a 70-year-old lady who was referred for coronary artery bypass grafts. And I always encouraged the training surgeons to see the patients first. And I employ the technique of playback. So once I've seen the patient, call me across and then play the history back to me in front of the patient. But anyway, Martin came in and said, yeah, this lady is fit for surgery. No problems. I said, no, no, this is what we do. And we went across and he told me the history and I turned to the patient and said, well, from your point of view, what exactly is the problem? And she went on to tell me that her husband's got dementia, that he falls on the floor, that she only gets angina when she tries to pick up her husband from the floor. And then said, doctor, I don't want an operation. I want somebody to look after my husband. And the problem is we've been married for 55 years and I think he should, since he's dementing, I think he should be in a care home. And this is, he's picked up on that and thinks that I'm trying to get rid of him. And he's talking about divorce. Wow. Uh, a patient has been through a system and nobody's asked what matters to them. And we've got to remember, as surgeons, we've got to remember the patient. We've got to remember what matters to them. So part of that assessment is seeing the patient, listening to the story. And as David said, I gave a talk to second year medical students the other day. There were 170 in the class. I couldn't see them. I couldn't read them. 
But online, I was actually asking them to put their hands up and put their hands down. But we have got mechanisms of involving uh, Menti and other programs to get audience participation. It's interesting. This- uh, it, it's interesting you, you, you said that. Um, I was just um, going to ask you specifically, um, given what we've been chatting about so far about the surgeon as an all-rounder and about someone who is more than just a technician, what do you think about the recent comments made on the webinar about um, the surgeon and the surgical trainer as a pill and this idea of quality control in surgery? I, 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 that was Harris who wrote that article. And uh, I, I think that as surgical trainers, it's a privilege and a joy to train that we, this is a, not a, a skill that is innate in everybody. It's something that needs to be developed. And the Faculty of Surgical Trainers is here to help trainers develop those skills. And you only know how good you are if you are prepared to ask your trainees and ask for feedback. And I know there's a reticence about that and feedback, but feedback is the breakfast of champions. And I've been asking feedback from my trainees right from day one. And it's a conversation and it's a constructive conversation as you alluded to earlier, Ceci. It's a constructive conversation. What, you know, I have a particular style in teaching, but the the trainer needs to be actually aware of different styles and different needs of the trainee and be able to switch between those to meet the trainee's needs. The one word that does come out from running the Silver Scalpel Award for 20 years is the word nurture. And this is where competence meets confidence. And that's why I'm also delighted that the college is led on let's remove it and hammer it out. Because confidence is very fragile, especially when you begin to learn. Ultimately, it's the trainer and the trainee relationship that is building that confidence and enabling the trainee to gain skills. Very, very wise words. Thank you so much for that insight. Um, I'll just come to you, um, David, riding now as we kind of draw this pod- podcast to a close. Do you have any practical tips um, as a senior trainee for trainees who might be listening to this podcast on how they can maximize their training opportunities in their department right now? So a couple of words of wisdom. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently just because I work in quite a large department and there's quite a lot of us of all uh, levels of experience all trying to get our own um, portfolios up to scratch and thinking about how we can improve it for each other. I think communication is a really important thing. So at the beginning of every week, just have a sit down, have a look at what cases are coming up, Um, you know, try and work out which cases need to be done by which trainee you know, if, if there's a, a complex aneurysm, that, that's obviously ideal for a, a more senior vascular trainee. And if there's, you know, early early stage cases like minor amputations, then it should be the, the core trainees who are allowed access to that. But the, the key thing is to plan it in advance and not just assume that people are going to naturally find their way into those cases. Um, it does involve things like holding bleeps for people. It does involve things like being flexible with swaps. But I think if, if the department gets into that culture of communicating every week about what cases are on the list and who can do what, uh, even different parts of different cases, then I think that that's a, an easy thing to do once you get into the habit of it. Um, I think dual registrar operating as well is something that my own department encourages, uh, whether that's a senior registrar with a junior registrar or, or two senior registrars together. Um, I- it's, it, Mm-hmm. Sorry, David, I, you were going to say. I, I like that idea, Dave, but I think two registrars assisting each other without a consultant in the room, offering that crew resource management and situational awareness, I'd be a little guarded. Um, yes, 
it's very nice to have a competent assistant opposite and that competent assistant ideally is the expert but I do worry that doctors in training helping each other and in that situation not infrequently you could then have an anesthetist in training in the room and then the nursing staff and the scrub nurses need to learn and introduce a trainee trainer into the training into the room you do need somebody there providing situational awareness and when i let go and trust my trainee to do an operation i do leave theater but i sit quietly in the corner out of sight from them and i'm listening and i'm watching to the regular rhythm and sounds in theater that indicate things are progressing well and can pick up on that i do wonder if you put two trainees together operating we'd run into problems but i do think i had in my training as an ASHO we had twin theaters and the consultant assigned us operating according to our abilities and walked between the two theaters between the senior registrar and the ASHO and although he facetiously said keep cutting my voice keep cutting he was coming in and sense checking to make sure one we were progressing and that we were happy and to have that oversight of an expert surgeon watching all those elements is important uh, we're going to be covering part of this in our faculty of surgical trainers conference and, and what's interesting dave is part of the letting go and trusting of your trainee to do something all comes with proper prior preparation that relationship and establishing a growth mindset to enable somebody to confidently operate yeah i mean i, I totally agree i think there's there's two ways of doing it there's either a, a conscious devolution to a pair of registrars or there's an unconscious one where you just say let them get on with it i think yeah, no, as, as no. an education as a trainer you know you, you have to have those skills of knowing when to step back knowing what yeah. the individual capabilities are of, of your trainees and and you know being able to assume having seen them in action many times before that that they're going to be capable uh and on the ball enough to do something properly um i know that in some departments that doesn't always happen that that assessment isn't made to the same standards that it should do but i think if if the educational leadership within a department is of sufficient quality then it, it's something that potentially allows people to access uh, a higher percentage of the cases that are coming through the department but i, I completely agree with you I, I think I think Dave, that you've hit on exactly the right point is the education leadership of the department, and do we really value training and put that at the forefront of what we do? I know there are some fantastic stables of cardiothoracic training around the country, and the people who go there set up their own units and have now become recognised as outstanding stables for. Uh, cardiothoracic training and it's a philosophy it's a way of thinking and it's they're doing it with the same tools they're doing it in the same environment but they're thinking about it differently and that's the important issue and i in some respects you you, you wouldn't learn to play golf just going off watching a video and going to the driving range you need to be seen by an expert doing this and one of my metaphors that i use is i think and then hence i established the training courses par excellence and uh, par autumn is the golfing metaphor is that when you come to work i believe you're coming to work to actually play a round of golf with a pro who's going to help you round the course if you get into the rough or bunker or long grass show you how to get out of it but to ensure that you're on par throughout that's playing the golf with a pro on the round but to get to that level there has to be a degree of practice on your own driving range at home and this is where my interest comes in in teaching basic surgical skills that I am 
teaching basic surgical skills along the philosophy of martial arts. And this is a journey of mastery and trying to encourage people to practice in low fidelity models at home. So you might have seen a tweet of mine, you've never seen a surgeon excited about buying a new ironing board. It's that it came up to the right height such that I can actually practice without bending over or any stress on my back. And uh, that's the philosophy. And I ran a Zoom lesson with colleagues in Oxford the other evening, and we scoping how to do learning skills at home. But there are some basic skills you can practice. And if you do, Dave, Greg, or Ceci, do you play an instrument? Do you play a musical instrument? I play the piano badly. How often do, how often do you practice, Ceci? Not practiced in years. Oh dear. Okay. Um, but again, this is you know, using wet labs as well. So with, when I'm training, I, I spend a lot of time in the wet lab assessing skills in the wet lab to ensure that the training is comfortable. And once in theater, we do break the operation down into parts. But if I set it up and I turn to the trainee and say, well, have you been practicing this week? And they say, yes. I say, excellent. You can come around and do this in osmosis. That's an environment where you know somebody has actually practiced. You've seen their skills. It's not stressed. And you put the various parts of this concerto of an operation together by rehearsing various bowels. Now I'm mixing another metaphor there. But this is actually how our training and build, building towards competency can happen. And I, I, mean, I, I hats off to all the doctors in training at the moment who put in a lot of work, but there's some fantastic thinking going on to address a lot of the concerns. And we shouldn't be worried about the numbers. We should be thinking about building other skills and uh, creating opportunities. And I think we should be recognizing, as Dave said, uh, leaders in education, in departments and hospitals, because that is the future. That is our currency. That is what we're here to do. David O'Regan, the passion with which you speak, uh, the, the detailed reflections and some of the advice, always, always uh, grateful for them and always an inspiration to future generation of current trainees who will be trainers of the future. So, Greg, who is your favorite teacher and why? Um, my favorite teacher um, is a consultant I work with at the moment. Uh, I could be specific about his name, but uh, is a consultant colorectal surgeon in a district general hospital uh, who has the perfect blend between nurturing, didactic teaching, but also constructive feedback as and when required, giving enough uh, latitude to get on with the work at hand, but also being within earshot to recognize any shortcomings and address them. Never shy to give feedback, but always fair and unmeasured in his approach. Dave? Um, I mean, there's been a lot of people um, who've, who've really encouraged me to to do what, what I do. Um, I think the fundamental thing is you need someone who's got your back and you need to be able to rely on them if things go wrong. You need to be able to rely on them to point you in the right direction and you need to be able to trust them so that you know that if they're giving you advice, it, it's, it, it's done with the best motivation and the best intentions. And also, you know, it's important to realize that these people have been through this process in one form or another themselves and so they know what it's like to stand there over a patient with a scalpel uh, and be intimidated um, but I think if you know that a trainer has your back then that gives you the confidence to go on and if you think that they are allowing you to perform a particular part of a procedure then you know that they have assessed you properly and that they will come and help you if you're struggling and when you do well, that you'll also be given positive feedback too. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it's maybe not as, maybe not, um, maybe it's just as simple as that. You just need someone to trust. And Ceci. 
So very similar to what the gentlemen have said, but for me, the additional thing is someone who actually cares what happens to you and who has a vested interest in your development and in your career. So my favorite um, was one I had about four years ago who um, made sure that I had a hand or as much as I could in planning the operative lists or just planning my education and my time and who made sure that he gave me operations he knew I could do, but with additional challenge when he saw I was progressing, but also took the time to give me detailed feedback on how I could get better. And he made the bad days not so bad and the good days even better. So I feel very honored to have had him as a trainer and we still communicate now and I feel like he genuinely cares whether I succeed as a surgeon. And I think the three of you have just summed up exactly what I'm wanting to achieve with the Faculty of Surgical Trainers because I believe every trainee deserves to have trainers like that throughout their careers and that is why I'm Delighted that the Silver Scalpel Award is now regarded as a badge of honor. And if you look at my blog on the college website, I was really excited to see that uh, the CEO of the Y Valley Foundation Trust extolled the virtues of having a good trainer in your hospital. And that's the culture change that I'm looking for for FST, because you, Ceci, Dave, and Greg, deserve the best. And that's what we need for everybody all the time. What a wonderful world, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, David O'Regan, Dave Writing, always a pleasure to chat to you both. Uh, thank you for coming on our podcast. 